Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and today on the show, I'll be joined by Kate Shellnut, who's been covering the Nashville shooting for CT. We'll talk about what we know and why it struck such a profound chord for evangelicals. Then I'll be joined by Russell Moore, our editor-in-chief, and Nicole Martin, our chief impact officer. We're going to talk about how this shooting has impacted the church, both nationally and especially the church in Nashville. Then we'll talk about the bigger picture, the current underneath these shootings, the witness of the church, and the need for a moral voice in our age. Joining me now is Kate Shelnut, Director of News for CT. She's been covering the story since Monday. Thanks, Kate, for joining us on The Bulletin. Thanks. So you and I are having a conversation on Wednesday night. Um, Information continues to emerge day by day. So with that caveat in mind, um, knowing that we might know more by Friday morning when this comes out, what can you tell us about this shooting and how it's uniquely affected evangelicals? So the shooting took place at the Covenant School in Nashville, which is a Christian private school, a pre-K through sixth grade program that's attached to Covenant Presbyterian Church in the Green Hills neighborhood of Nashville, which is like an affluent upscale neighborhood in the city of Nashville. And as soon as we on the news side heard that a shooting had taken place at a school or you hear those initial reports of an active shooter situation, our attention kind of focused in more intently when we knew it was Nashville. Nashville is a place where it's known as like this hub for evangelicals, right? And I even looked it up that Tennessee has twice the average number of evangelicals in the rest of the country. More than half of the state identifies as evangelical and that there are those networks there of it's the home of the Southern Baptist Convention. It was the longtime home of the United Methodist Church, of publishing houses, of Christian music. And sure enough, as the story unfolded, the details of what happened at this Presbyterian Church in America school, that it seemed like Everybody we knew in Nashville was affected, which includes, you know, people on our staff who had colleagues and contacts and friends and sources who had families and pastors and mentors who were just one or two degrees of separation away because of the way that that hub is, that 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 evangelical center is in, in Nashville all, all together at once. And that meant for us that what we felt, we knew a lot of our readers would feel that they would have these kinds of connections where even now, famously, one of the victims was the daughter of the church's senior pastor. And there was a vigil held at his church in Dallas. I thought that was just a sign of 
how it really felt like a Christian school suffering this was like almost that example of the body of Christ, you know, one member being hurt and like the rest of us feeling Mm. the ripple effects. And so it felt important for us to cover the details and to have a story, knowing how much the community in Nashville and then therefore the broader evangelical community was going to think over this. And then the additional layer that's come with that, that's been the unanswered question is knowing that the school was targeted and presumably targeted for being Christian. And we don't know the details of that, of exactly the nature of the motive, but I think that adds an additional level and degree of of interest and concern for this particular crime. Yeah. A friend of mine who was very close to the circumstances said, if you're at this church, you look in one direction and in one direction is the church that the children and teachers and staff members, like they all fled that way towards a, a fairly influential Southern Baptist church. You look in the other direction, there's a sort of high-end prep school where lots of evangelical leaders send their kids to go to school. And then there's a neighborhood right behind it where several prominent denominational leaders and Christian artists and influencers are all living. And so it really did happen in the heart of this sort of hub of influence. And I think that is one of the reasons why it's captivated people. What do we know right now? I think when the thing took place, there was kind of a flood of information that came on Monday. Some of it seemed like it maybe it was a little confused at the time. There was, a, as often happens after these shootings, we don't quite know what's going on. But what do we know at this point? Yeah, I think that there are is a wave of information that has been released, and then there's going to be the process of vigils, and then we'll hear the rest. Some of the information that we've gotten in the couple of days since the shooting happened on Monday was more information from the Nashville Metro Police Department, including body camera footage from the officers who were involved in the incident, including the security footage from the church itself. And I don't know that we've seen at least right away within 24 hours of an incident, so much kind of like detailed information right from the scene. All of this was released with viewer discretion. And I will say as someone who watched some of it, maybe take those discretions to heart, even just hearing gunshots and seeing it happen in the environment of those classroom hallways that your mind can't help but go to, right? The classroom hallways that you went through or your kids are going through. So we were able to get a little more of the details of the timelines of when the shooting happened, how quickly police were able to respond and apprehend the suspect, the shooter who was killed on scene, the shooter's name being Audrey Hale. More details have come out about the shooter's identity, some of it conflicting in terms of them having used a different name, Aiden, and he, him pronouns in a social media profile, but I think there are still some questions about their transgender identity, but certainly that's one of the factors that that people are looking into. There was also a contact who came forward who described exchanging messages on social media with the shooter directly beforehand and reporting to a suicide hotline and to 311, worried that the shooter was threatening suicide, but not realizing until, of course, seeing the news that that involved violence and shooting against others. So that's another detail that had come forward. Yeah, I saw in the timeline that was presented today, I believe that she was calling the police dispatch non-emergency line right at the same time that the 911 calls began at Covenant School. And so I was curious your thoughts on this. One of the things that struck me is kind of like you said, the speed with which 
Nashville's police department wanted to get information out and wanted to release this footage. You kind of had this sense of like, we're going to be as transparent as possible, as quickly as possible, which seems odd. I don't know. I have a couple pieces just of like speculation around that. So this is just my gut from the news. I think one of it was we obviously saw what happened in Uvalde in Texas with that incredibly deadly school shooting that took out pretty much an entire classroom of children and in which police waited long, long after 911 was called. And even while kids were making these repeated calls from inside the classroom asking for help, I get goosebumps like talking about it now. And I think it really did serve as a contrast of what it looks like for someone to rush into a scene where there's an armed gunman in a school in contrast to waiting. On the other hand, I think the other thing is that we knew a few details in the beginning from the police chief's first press conference, which involved maps of the school, the fact that there was originally another target that was deemed too secure for the shooter to get in, as well as a manifesto. And we haven't heard more details on what the nature of those things are. And maybe we won't. There may be a way that they weigh the risk and say it's actually not worth it to have a lot of this hateful material Mm. or whatever it is out there. And perhaps showing the body cam footage, showing the closed circuit TV footage is a way to kind of feed people's interest and information Mm. without getting into the stickier elements right away. And maybe it will be that that down the road we get that, but I also think that they'll be really discerning about how and when you release that just for fear of, yeah, of inciting copycats, of stirring people up even further around it. I'm curious, have you covered these stories in the past? And if so, how does this one feel different where we are right now? I do think it feels different because of it being a Christian school. Mm-hmm. And it's weird to say that. And so I'll, I'll offer the caveat of it's not because our heart breaks anymore when children are killed in a Christian environment, right? Like it's not that lives are worth more or less depending on the room that they're sitting in or the circumstances of their death. But I think the way it feels different is that it feels like a Venn diagram of the safety and comfort that you expect or imagine in a sanctuary, right? In a church and the safety that you would hope for your children in an elementary school, right? This was a young group of students to be pre-K through six. They're, you know, they're not even teenagers yet. So it felt like two environments where you would expect and hope that people would be safe And I I even remember I I went through and watched like all the school's videos just to get a sense of Catherine Coons, the the headmaster, the head of school who was killed, to hear the way that she talked about her job and her students. And I noticed in one of them how many times they said safe. They said, oh, it's a classroom environment where kids feel safe, where they can be themselves, right? Where they can talk with their teachers and ask questions about their faith and know that they'll be supported. And so just to contrast that, that what the school and the church set out to be with what ended up happening is really scary. And then to me, I also have been thinking lately after watching the police videos to think of, it's kind of a beautiful church, you know, it's got the brick, it's very classic looking. Mm -hmm. And to think a lot of these churches and schools that have been 
places of mass shootings have gone on to be leveled, to be destroyed, that they've had to rebuild it. So obviously people care about the people more than the building, but it's a double loss, right? That's not going to be the place where people have their joyful Easter celebrations in a week and a half. There's a real deep hit to a community when an incident like this, I think, happens at a Christian school. One of the things I I heard Matt Continetti talking about this the other day, he said, you know, when you look at what happened after 9-11, you saw that the the government response to this vulnerability in our society was to create what is now feels like this sort of irritating bureaucracy every Mm -hmm. time you have to get on an airplane. So you have to take your shoes off or you have to do TSA pre-check or you have to you do whatever. And it's monotonous, but you can't deny the fact that since December of 2001, when Richard Reed tried to explode his shoe bombs, there hasn't been a successful attempt on a domestic U.S. flight. Any flights that have had to deal with our TSA system, they've been able to keep it safe. But the way they do it, you know, they use this language of like they've hardened the target, right? Mm-hmm. So it's there's one corridor you have to get through. You have to go through these security features. Everything's x-rayed, all of this. And it's like you can kind of get away with that at a school. And there are schools that operate that way, Certain certainly some, certain urban environments. There are schools that have operated that way for a long time. But how on earth do you, quote unquote, harden a target like a church? How do you create an environment where, okay, well, we can't have doors that people can shoot through and we're going to have x-ray machines, and we're going to have metal detectors, and they talk about these double-door systems that they call man-trap doors, where you have to go through and basically get locked between these two doors before you get let into the other one so that they can scan you and, you know, machines are sniffing for bombs and all the rest of it in, in these vulnerable targets in urban centers. And it's like, man, like, a church could never do that, Right. Part of what you were saying of, you know, doors that people couldn't shoot through. I mean, if you're operating by the playbook that we've known up until this point, all signs point to Covenant, the church and the school doing that, right? Like they had the double doors, they had the closed circuit TV cameras, they had the alarm systems, they had one entry point. And it just takes one person doing the thing to get around it. Like you said, doing the liquid shoe bomb that we saw for that to be to set a new standard. And I do think you're already starting to see, even within days, Christian schools talking about and answering questions from parents about when's the last time that you've had a training for an active shooter. In this case, we know that the church had a training last year. And part of that is cited as as perhaps helping the police be more effective when they arrived. You can hear in the recording, the woman who reports, the staff member who reports, tells them exactly where the gunshots are, exactly where the kids are, the fact that there were, I think, two students unaccounted for at that point, and just relays the information in a matter of like 15 seconds, 10, 15 seconds. Wow. And at that point, the police had been shot on coming into the school so they could identify the shooter that way too. But there was a sense of this wasn't a lack of preparedness on, on right. Covenant's part. And so it's unsettling. I think that mm-hmm. another thing that came up as we discussed this is I talked about, we had one of our younger staff members bring up what it's like to be in a generation that grew up with school shootings being the norm and I said, well, well, I did too. And I'm older, quite a bit older than her. And I referenced after Columbine, how we had metal detectors in schools. We had to have clear backpacks. We weren't allowed to carry backpacks in school. We had to carry our books 
in our hands. So I kind of complained about the process, like, oh, I've been dealing with these extra hangups, the same at the airport. And her feeling was like, no, I am different as a person emotionally Mm. and mentally because of the fear of it. So Mm. it's like, even whatever, even if we figure out a new step or new process, we put in steel doors that lock behind you at church. It doesn't solve the feeling of, oh, I have to think about Mm. this now. Mm -hmm. And the contrast of that was kind of remarkable to me, but I think it's, it's one worth talking about. And it was something that came up too. I talked to the pastor of that church, Woodmont Baptist Church, where the reunifications happened. And I asked him, did anything from your preparedness, your security safety, church safety training come into play here? And he was like, well, yeah, a lot of that has to do with you know, how we keep our church secure entrances and exits and, mm-hmm. and all of that. It doesn't have to do with what we say to comfort people. What mm-hmm. is the training and preparation for when someone is laying prostrate in front of your office, bawling, waiting to know if their kid is one of the kids in the fellowship hall? Mm. He's like, I have no training for that. There's no, there's no handbook. There's no no safety manual. There's nothing. And he spoke of feeling like I didn't have, have the words, Mm -hmm. but to pray with them and to, to call in the spirit. So yes, there's going to be some practical needs, but I think deeply, is there going to be like the emotional needs of the, the feeling of vulnerability that comes with each of these mass shootings. Um, And this was something that Russell wrote about for us today. And, Maybe there is an inclination to get numb, but I think there's also just a stacking up where I felt like I had like tears on the surface in this one where in other cases you kind of can just like harden through it. Mm-hmm. I feel like at, at a certain point you reach that it's been a, it's been too many, right? Mm-hmm. To, to get through it anymore. I agree. I mean, there's, there's no way to normalize reading that children have been killed in a, in a massacre. The evil of that, yeah. hopefully always, is shocking yeah. in that way. So, okay, thank you for your work on this and your coverage. We will continue to look for updates from you and the insights that you're uniquely able to offer for that. Thanks for joining us on the bulletin. Thanks. Like I said at the beginning of our conversation, Kate and I were speaking on Wednesday night. The facts on the ground haven't changed much. This is Thursday afternoon now. But one story felt worth addressing On Wednesday night, Inside Edition released a story from a former pastor from Covenant Church in which he suggested that Chad Scruggs, the pastor whose daughter was killed in the massacre, had been counseling the shooter. I spoke to someone this morning that was close to this story and involved in the same presbytery as Chad Scruggs, and this story is not true. Pastor Scruggs had not been counseling her, and the idea that he or his daughter were deliberately targeted because of that is just rank speculation. We'll be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. 
If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me now are Russell Moore and Nicole Martin. Nicole, welcome. This is your first time joining us on The Bulletin. Okay, so where I want to start, uh, Russell, is with you. This is your community. Um, these are people that are close to you. What can you tell us about what's happening on the ground in Nashville right now? Well, it's just a few miles from my house. I have a, a very dear and close friend whose children were there who survived, but survived only because one was uh, evacuated into the woods and the other was locked down in a room hearing all of this happening. And one of the uniquely wrenching aspects of this is um, Nashville's a fairly big city, but it's a very close-knit community. And uh, almost uh, everybody that I know, we're all connected to the people there, including several who were killed. And uh, so I, I went last night from being with some folks who were going to a church service, uh, mourning this, on over to Vanderbilt, where I was with uh, students uh, all evening, talking to people who are living through this. One parent said to me last night, it's just, I, I just keep jigsaw puzzle putting all of the events in my mind over and over again, because it's like, it's like a horror movie. And mm. um, it's, I, I'm really angry. I mean, this is something that has hit this community in a way that reminds me there have been so many of these, one right after the other. And if you're not there, if you don't know the people, I mean, the principal was a very respected figure here and a very loved uh, figure here. If you're not connected to it, it tends to just become a list of statistics and a list of names and when you're there in the middle of it, you remember how horrifying it is just to move on. And so this is something that the scars here in Nashville will remain uh, for a long, long time. Your newsletter that you've written talks about challenges, you know, the church not to be numb to this. And I, I was really convicted by it because the news broke on Monday about it and it hit hard. You know, I felt the horror of it to a certain degree. And then it wasn't until the next morning that I started to hear from my friends who were close to it. So for instance, uh, Sandra McCracken, a singer-songwriter who's a columnist with CT, she's already shared this publicly. Her husband is the minister of music at the church and mm -hmm. was there. So this is deeply personal for her. And once I spoke with her, I started to you know, make other connections with other friends in that community who were affected. And just knowing one person, just having that one actual personal connection sort of shattered the numbness for me. Yeah. And it feels completely different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think we're at a point where I remember when Columbine happened in, uh, I think it was 1999, 2000. I remember right where I was. It was kind of a mm -hmm. September 11th sort of moment. And then you think of how many 
others have happened time after time after time, and they just tend to become a blur, and we get numb to it. And we have teachers who are trying to determine what do we do. There are teachers who have buckets that are filled with tourniquets and, and other things just in case, and teaching and training children to be able to my own 11-year-old, I was dealing with having nightmares about a school shooting after this, and, and he wasn't even there for that moment in the school. I can only imagine the children who actually were. I mean, this is not the way it is supposed to be. And I think that the real danger is that we get to the point where we assume somehow that this is normal or that we just say, ah, this is the way the world is. Uh, what can you do? There was a United States congressman from Tennessee who just almost literally shrugged his shoulders and said, you know, you can't fix this. If people are going to do something, if they're going to take you out, they're going to take you out. Well, if that's the reasoning, then we should have no laws about anything. And just have complete red and tooth and claw law of the jungle. I mean, mm -hmm. th this is um, the, the numbness has gone on for so long that it's time to see the insanity for what it is. First of all, I really appreciate what it means to come alive to the trauma of the moment. I was struck by several things. The first that, that got me was I was listening to a reporter who was reporting on the scene and she had survived a high school shooting herself. So she was saying the trauma of having to report on a school shooting, knowing that I've survived a school shooting, is a lot for me. Picking my kids up from school and having to talk to them about what happened so that they wouldn't hear it from someone else. The only word I can think of is just trauma. And it's going to take a while to wrestle with how do we balance being present to this pain, but also being able to move forward in a way that isn't always on fire with the pain of the moment. That's the hard part for me as a parent. That has been the hard part, whether it was Uvalde or something else. There's a sense of this happened in a space that was supposed to be safe. And this is another sign that no place is safe. And I have to move forward in raising my children, but I cannot afford to close off the pain because the moment I shut down the pain is the moment I become numb and I take on that same posture of, well, you know, this is just life, but this mm -hmm. shouldn't be how life is. I remember years ago talking with Harold Best. He was the longtime dean of the Conservatory of Music at Wheaton College. And maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there was this moment in the church where there had been this resurgence of hymns. He traced it to 2001. And he said, you know, in the aftermath, the Sunday after 9-11, the church came together and yeah. they didn't have a song because they'd shelved the hymnals and, you know, contemporary music was sort of ruling the day at the time. And they had to go back to the hymns. Mm -hmm. And I've thought about that a lot this week. I thought about, you know, there's a friend of mine named John Whitvliet who says, you know, the role of the pastor is to prepare the church for its encounter with death. And so I'm I'm wondering, is the church prepared to grieve mm. in a moment mm -hmm. like this? You know, Nicole, you talk about moving on. I know you're not saying simply forget it and move past. I, you know, I know you're not saying Absolutely. that. But moving into it even, how does the church grieve? Yeah. In a moment That's like right. this. Well, it's funny you mentioned hymns. I was last night with Vanderbilt uh, students, Christian Vanderbilt, some non-Christian students who came too, but but mostly uh, Christian ministries at Vanderbilt. 
And we had had uh, worship that would have been maybe a typical college uh, sort of worship, good musicians, but the sort of thing you would you would normally see there. Um, then I spoke, and we we were ending, and as we were being dismissed, one student yelled out the doxology. Mm. This was a 20-year-old kid, the doxology. <laughs> and everyone sang the doxology because what we all needed at that moment was something yeah. that connects mm -hmm. generations. It's not just an expression of individual or yeah. even generational connection and lament, but something mm -hmm. that is continuous and, and reaches that deep level. And we need that. We, yes, we, we have do. to have it. Yes, we do. I remember... Um, I was familiar with several of the members of Emmanuel after the shooting in Charleston, mm. and there was a time period where not just that church, but other churches came together and returned to the hymns and to the spirituals, because when you really unpack the spirituals, you see what the tension of pain and longing kind of sounds like. It's the, soon I'll be done with this because there's this eschatological hope, and without that hope, then I'm stuck here. And I remember just how strange it was, the criticism that came from groups of people after a horrendous shooting who came together to sing songs of lament and hope. And the criticism was, you're trying to move forward. You're trying to just put a little Jesus forgiveness over this and act like it never happened. But the reality is, no, this is how biblically we get by. We lament and we have hope, and we share those two realities in tension with each other. Because if we don't share those in tension, what else do we have? Yeah, I have to confess, like, I often worry about this with the church. As someone who grew up, the churches I grew up in, for the most part, were very, very contemporary yeah. churches. We, you know, not just very little with the hymnal, but even in the the body of songs that we often sang, songs in the youth group, the CCM mm -hmm. that was always playing, all the rest of it. It's very triumphalistic. And yeah, yeah. It was something that in the church that I, you know, helped plant and helped pastor, we may have reacted too hard the other way where things mm. were too grim and everything was black and candles and, mm. you know, it's it's a joke that people made. Ed Stetzer, I think, still makes jokes about what our church was like uh, at conferences today. I, I but, just remember, Mike, a, a really, really dark version of Joy to the World that uh, <laughs> you all did one time. It's on Spotify. You can check it yeah. out. But again, I mean, Joy to the World is actually like a, a great example in, mm -hmm. in a way because – that final verse, a yes. verse that many churches do not sing, right. yes. is that this is going as far as the curse is found. Yes. And so the, the joy in that song is always connected to this awareness. I mean, Watts was brilliant with this, uh, the author of the hymn, understanding that whatever it is we celebrate, we celebrate in the shadow of death. Absolutely. And I, I wonder, how do churches that are, obviously churches that are in the midst of this, I generally feel like the Holy Spirit, as I've witnessed it, the, the Holy Spirit shows up to draw people to the words and the prayers and the songs they need. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is there something that the church larger can take away from this? Should we be asking, mm -hmm. I mean, I would say like, if, if you're a pastor, if you're a member of a church, are you prepared? Do you have mm -hmm. words to sing? Do you mm -hmm. have words to pray right. when a moment like this shows up? I think about, I have right next to me, the Baptist hymnal, mm -hmm. and I always do. And largely because of that, because I can inhabit in the words that I know that I was taught as a child and have been with me ever since. And I can tie them to people's funerals and celebration mm -hmm. of baptisms and 
people's weddings. And in many ways, it holds a life together and it's able to join people together in those moments when there, there really is nothing to say the groaning of Romans 8 groaning out with the rest of the creation. Sometimes there's nothing to say, but there are things to sing. Mm-hmm. Well said. First of all, I come from a very singing family. I mean, like my family, it was very funny. I had a white friend say, does everybody in your family sing? I was like, yes, it's also stereotype, but yes, <laughs> whole family sings. So when we get together, we all sing, but there are certain songs that we sing that tie back to the songs that were sung that carried our family through some very difficult times. Satisfied is the song that my grandmother sings. Mm-hmm. And she's, you know, went through the river to be baptized. Uh, soul got happy and I feel all right. There's a sense, the whole refrain is, this world was hard, this world was dark, but but I turned to Jesus and I found hope. The songs, my dad was a pastor and his one of his favorite songs was Hold to His Hand. And it starts with, time is filled with swift transition, not on earth, you know, unmoved can stand. Build your hope on things eternal, hold to God's unchanging hand. So the themes of some church contexts really can be a foundation for us because, again, there is a sense of the challenges and the trials of this world are hard. Without that recognition, there can be no leaning into hope. And is this not the perfect season for us to have these types of conversations? If churches in this season leading into Good Friday and leading into resurrection cannot build on the tension of the cross and resurrection, what do you have? Hmm. Now is the time to remember the, the sacred challenge and lament of crucifixion. Now is the time to remember that our our hope is built on nothing less, you know, than, than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I'm not going to sing it, but there's a sense of timing that I refuse to honor the people who say, well, you know, God allowed this to happen at the, no, no. But there is a redemptive moment of the time that mm. says, we use this space to cling to the cross And in clinging to the cross, we lean into the hope of resurrection. That would be an opportunity, perhaps, for churches and for pastors. Russ, you know, you and I have spoken often on this podcast about the ways that we see an emerging generation that's really struggling to understand the church, to connect to the church, because of all these stories we've told about the failed witness of the church. Mm -hmm. I wonder... What do you imagine or what are you hearing? What did you hear at Vanderbilt from Christians who are in that space? What questions were they asking? How are they looking to the grief of the moment? You know, over the last week, I've been at University of Virginia, Baylor, and Vanderbilt right in a row and seeing very similar things and similarly positive things happening among students there in all of those places. But last night, particularly at Vanderbilt, one of the things that I saw was a kind of bafflement and a sense of why is this happening? And and that always is the case, but it wasn't a theodicy question. It wasn't why is this happening with a good God, although that is a an important question. It was does anybody even care about this to address it? When you're living in a time where everything is so polarized and everything seems to be so hate-filled. So I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance because they're seeing at the same time 
this sort of really broken American culture and moment, which can be seen even in just the way that some people responded immediately, just sort of going into their culture war canons of various kinds. But they're seeing that and they're seeing the sense in Nashville, particularly a kind of what Wendell Berry means when he says membership of uh, people belonging to one another and caring for one another. And so I think there was a sense of dissonance there. And what I said to one of them is keep the dissonance Mm -hmm. because both of those things are true. And if you lose sight of either one of them, then you're going to be led into either cynicism or despair. So hold Mm -hmm. them and hold them together. I thought a lot about the idea of grief as witness too. You have this story, you have so many examples of, gosh, I mean, you, You just start to list out what our country's been through in the last seven, eight years, whether it's the pandemic, the George Floyd protests and the protests around that, the storming of the Capitol, violence in so many different ways. And I think the temptation for the church and certainly the temptation for many Christians is to show up and say, everything's going to be all right. Yeah. Like real Mm -hmm. quick, you know, everything's Mm going to be all right. And I wonder if the witness of being able to you know, something Sandra said yesterday, like being able to be like Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus and show yeah. up and weep yes. doesn't yes. have a, an even more profound effect than pushing that positive, it's going to work yeah. out kind of narrative. Because not to take anything away from anything you've said, Nicole, about hope, I think that's absolutely true. But lament mm-hmm. is always rooted in hope because there's an acknowledgement that this is just simply not the way yep. the world is meant to be. At the risk of going back to a hymn, crown him with many crowns, behold his hands inside, those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified, mm. uh, e- even resurrection hope. We're reminded of the, the horror from which we've come. Absolutely. And it's, it's necessary to have a cross-shaped and empty tomb-shaped life. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, I absolutely agree with what the witness of grief looks like. I've been wrestling with this for a while, actually since my dad passed. And the wrestling has been, what does it look like to grieve and not make everything all right when things really are difficult? And the odd story that I kept coming to is the story of Rizpah in 2 Samuel 21, where Rizpah, you know, is the mother of one of seven men who are killed and they're bodies are left out for months and Rizpah stays and keeps vigil over their bodies for months until David does what is right, until he brings the justice that was owed to these young men and their bodies. And the power of what it looks like to hold a grief vigil, what does that look like? It doesn't mean that I wear sackcloth and ashes, but it does mean that I don't have to rush to the point of justice too quickly. I can sit with the Lord in grief. I can hold a vigil of injustice, whether it was something I experienced myself or if it was an injustice done to someone else. There's a space in faith that allows me to cry out, how long, O Lord? There's a space in faith that allows me to say, as we've seen on many t-shirts, it's okay to not be okay. And I've been wrestling with this because I do believe you're right. I have seen the damage that comes from grieving people who have told other people, oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. I'm 
doing great. <laughs> the next generation sees through that. You know, they call that they call that the cotton candy gospel. Every day is not always going to be better. Your best day is not always ahead. And how do you reconcile that in what I would say is a highly traumatized generation that has been exposed. My children have been exposed to more trauma at eight and 10 than I was ever exposed to, thanks to all of social media and the news in 2020 and everything else. So I think you're right. The witness of grieving can be a witness inadvertently of hope if we can demonstrate that I'm okay holding vigil. I'm okay being not okay because Mm -hmm. I do believe that justice is coming And until that time, I'm willing to wait. You know, I'm willing to grieve and and fight and struggle for it. I had a student at uh, the University of Virginia last week who said, if Jesus is alive, why does everything suck? (laughs) And I said, well, you know, that actually is the question that goes all the way back. Justin Martyr yes. with Trifo, and then beyond that, that's that's the question in at the end of Luke, when Jesus is on the road to, to, to Emmaus, and the followers say, we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And yeah. they, in that moment of hopelessness, they didn't even recognize that he was walking with them mm. until the breaking of bread. And there's a momentary flash, yeah. as T.S. Eliot would say, hints and guesses, there's those mm. little flickering uh, realization. And I think in moments like this, that's exactly what happens. We have to honestly face the horror and we see those signposts in the middle of it that we're not abandoned in the universe. God is not gone. Jesus is in fact alive. And that's what I think can carry us through. Yeah. Even as you say that, I think of Chesterton's little piece on the book of Job and suffering mm-hmm. in the book of Job. And, you know, he says, Job spends so much of this book saying, you know, when God shows up, he's going to explain that it's going to make sense. Mm-hmm. And God shows up and goes, look at the ostrich. Look at these <laughs> yeah. things. None mm-hmm. of it makes sense. What That's makes it. you think it's going to make sense yeah. to you that this is going to make sense? And then Chesterton points out that on the other side of God saying, none of it's going to make sense to you. Job is happy because God is there. God mm-hmm. is present. Mm-hmm. I think that's true for us now. So we will be right back. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. So I've found myself for the last several days really caught up in trying to understand how this has happened and how this has become a feature of our culture. You know, you've always had throughout history, you've had sociopaths, you've had murderous people, you've had murder sprees. But when you really look at the phenomenon of mass shooters, there is a microculture here. And it's really small, it's fringe, it's marginal. But because of the internet, because of technology, because of these various ways of connecting, it's fostered and celebrated in a new way. And that goes all the way back to Columbine. You know, Christine Rosen wrote about this this week, like there's sort of a sugar high in terms of being a substitute for community. It's really shallow. It's not actually nurturing anything, but it hits your bloodstream in this quick way and, and kind of lights up 
your brain. Weirdly enough, what it's had me actually thinking about is Tocqueville's book, Democracy in America, where he talks about the relationship between religion and, and democracy, religion and liberty in a really interesting way. He says, you know, when you have a very libertine government like we have in the U.S., it needs some kind of constraining influence. And for him, that was the role religion played in America. It, it had religion provided this moral order that was bigger than the law so that citizens, when they're thinking about the law, when they're living in society, they've got something bigger and more important than politics that's already informed their character. He writes this. He says, you know, at the same time that the law permits American people to do everything, religion prevents them from conceiving everything and it forbids them to dare everything. And when I read that, I immediately thought as well of like Dostoevsky's famous line from the Brothers Karamazov, where Rakuten, you know, is in this debate and he asks, you know, what's going to become of men without God and immoral life? All things are permitted then. They can do what they like. So when we think about the declining influence of religion in American life, I can't help but think about the emergence of this phenomenon, the emergence of a subculture, the emergence of this kind of celebration in that light, in the decline of religion. And then I, I read a comment from Harvey Mansfield on this this week as well, and he says, to secure its power, religion must keep its purity. And by that he means it has to stay out of the struggle for political power. And then when it stays out of politics, it can have the most power in politics for the sake of fostering restraint. So when you look at this, it seems out of the range, as evil as humanity is, there's so many things that feel out of the range of what's even conceivable in a murder spree that involves children like this. And we've seen them over and over again. How much ought we attribute that to generally humanity has fallen and broken? And how much would we be rightly attributing to this very specific history, this cultural moment where religion and morals as rightly understood okay. for the last few hundred years in, in Christendom, in a sense, has been in decline? Well, I do think that the disintegration of communities particularly and religious communities being a key part of that is behind this. I mean, you think there was a study several years ago, we tend to think of these shooters as lone wolves. And they are. People will often say this is someone who kept to himself and we never really saw him. But this study showed they're lone wolves, but they're lone wolves who have that illusion of community that you just mentioned. So they're able to find people who can then radicalize them, usually online. And so when real life communities are disintegrated, especially when they're replaced by the sort of rhetoric that we have around us all the time where everything is an existential threat and everybody is an existential foe. And someone will say, yes, but these people are deranged. They're mentally ill. Yes, but we have to take into account how those things are going to be heard by people who are estranged and disconnected from communities. And what contributes when we have a general atmosphere of hatred and toxicity and you don't have places where there can be genuine accountability? So you think about in this case, one of the reasons that I'm so angry about this is that this person was able to purchase legally seven guns despite the fact that there were family members involved who were saying there are serious red flags here. Well, 
there needs to be the kind of intact communities that are able to actually then deal with that problem. And we're at the most vulnerable time that I have seen when it comes to that. And I think, you know, it's moments like these where we start to question where is the source of power? So the decline of religion can also equate to the decline of, of the authority of scripture, the decline of the understanding of the power of God over and above the powers of this world. So with religious decline, it becomes synonymous with a decline in the thinking that God has power over these things. And then you start to unpack the culture of violence. Well, where is the power dynamic there? In those cases, people, like you alluded to, Mike, there's a sense of, of applause, of a stage that's set. There's a platform that people can have that gives them a sense of power. And then when you get into the critiques and the culture wars, then you get into nuances of power. Who has it? Who doesn't? Who has the ability, the authority to say yes and no? And for me, what I want my kids to know is there will always be powers in this world that need to be navigated and negotiated, but no power can supersede the power of God. There is no power or strength that's stronger than the power of scripture. But when you have a society that questions where power comes from or who gets to have power, then you have the chaos of the moment because it's a power grab. So if I can mm -hmm. spotlight myself, my agenda, my, my role, my platform, then I'll take by any means necessary, I will make that happen. And this is why I think, Russell, you're right. We To see this as a lone incident would be a big mistake, a missed opportunity for us to lean into what will it take to raise a generation that has a different view of faith and religion and prayerfully a different, more powerful view of God's authority over all things. I was talking yesterday to a friend who's counterterrorism expert has been working in this area of radicalization, both internationally and nationally. And one of the things that she said is it would be a serious mistake to release a manifesto. I mean, we're still in the haze of time. We don't know what even between the time we're recording this and when it's broadcast, we don't know what all will be the case. But in many of these cases, there's some sort of very grandiose written manifesto. And her point was that in so many of these incidences that happen later, people are citing the manifestos from the previous shooting, regardless of, of what it is about. And it actually gives a kind of twisted, perverted sense of power to the manifesto writer that we should not uh, dignify. So there's a, a difference between communicating, okay, this is what the motive was behind this and publishing the actual words of someone who is seeking that. I mean, really, if you think about it, whether we're talking about jihadist uh, suicide bombers or we're talking about this kind of thing, there's a desire for a kind of glory that has been so degenerated and depraved and a, a clamoring and a seeking of many other people for that kind of glory that's satanic. I mean, it's, it's demonic yeah. to the core. You know, there's an element of this that's very American and people talk about the various reasons that it exists, guns, you know, the prevalence of guns and, and all of that. And that surely plays a part of it. But you also have this like American sort of mythical type of the anti-hero. You saw it in serial killers. You see it in the way, you know, movements like this, these online movements celebrate people like the Unabomber and Timothy McVeigh. Let me walk through a timeline here because I think this is interesting. 
Again, you have assassins throughout American history, like John Wilkes Booth, Charles Ghetto, who killed President Garfield. But then you have this interesting two-decade window. It starts in 1963 with the assassination of Medgar Evers. Then within a few years, John F. Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., Robert Kennedy, Harvey Milk, John H. Wood, John Lennon. You also have failed assassination attempts in George Wallace, Larry Flint, the publisher and pornographer, Ronald Reagan. And then this phenomenon, sort of the high-profile assassination and assassin starts to wane in the mid-'80s. Maybe that was because of improved security and making targets more difficult. There's a lot of probably reasons. Then something happens in 1988. There's a shooting at Atlantic Shores Christian School in Virginia Beach. And this is one of the first times – there's lots of examples of shootings happening at schools. This is one of the first times where a shooter turned randomly on students. 1997 – Paducah, Kentucky, a 14-year-old kills three and wounds five students. Then March of 1998, Westside Middle School in Arkansas, a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old kill a teacher and four students. And then, of course, Columbine in 99. And at that point, the dam breaks. And I'm just going to read this list. Red Lake School, West Nickel Mine School, Virginia Tech, Chardon High School, Oikos University, Sandy Hook, Santa Monica, Marysville Pilchuck High School, Parkland High School, Santa Fe High School, Oxford High School, Uvalde last year, Covenant School. And those are the larger, those are the ones that amassed the larger numbers of deaths. But there are dozens more where shooters were you know, restrained by security guards, where people survived the shootings. That's just an enormous phenomenon. And I can't help but wonder if between sort of the advent of the internet and this cultural phenomenon where these things tend to repeat themselves, if there isn't something deeply, and I mean this in a negative way, obviously, but like there's something deeply American of this kind of search for celebrity, search for fame, and willingness to go to these incredibly dark places to find it. As you're reading that list, I'm almost at a loss of words for the grief that has been experienced for parents who have lost children, children with dreams and families torn apart and just how every next event re-triggers those who have survived the previous event. And when you go back to the idea of the manifesto, what gets lost at times in the translation is the way that this re-triggers, it, it provokes another layer of grief for people that, whose lives will never be the same. Their lives will never be the same. And every time a manifesto is read or published or shared, there's danger on all sides. But the victims, the survivors, the way that that affects them over and over is just almost unbearable. And it does strike me that this is uniquely American, but it also strikes me that we lose the humanity of grief and loss. We lose that, the trauma. I mean, I keep coming back to that word because that's what it is. Whenever a parent has to stand up and now that parent has started a nonprofit and that parent is now fighting on behalf of other parents who've lost loved ones, we start to see even that and applaud it without recognizing this is grief. This is abnormal loss. This is absolutely painful. If this is an American phenomenon, what is required of the American church to be able to bring healing in those types of deeply painful situations? 
Uh, Mike, you mentioned the anti-hero uh, myth. I mean, I, I think we have to deal with a huge part of the issue, which is the changing attitude and mythology around guns. So whatever somebody's perspective on exactly what the Second Amendment allows for to be restricted and not, we have seen a huge shift in the way that we even present and think about guns. So if you go back to, say, the 1970s, 1980s, even the NRA, the imagery that's being put forward is of responsible citizens in a community hunting, passing down, hunting to their children, protecting their communities together. That's very different from the sort of world we're in now where members of Congress are putting out Christmas cards with all of their children holding AR-15s. I mean, there's something very sick about that because what's behind that is I want to own the people who would find that to be offensive. Those Christmas cards and fundraising lists and those sorts of things aren't the cause of this, but they're another symptom of something that's gone really wrong. So we've had an entirely different even sort of conversation around guns. We can't even have the constitutional debates that we that we used to have, which were contentious enough. Yeah, I think that Christmas card you're mentioning in particular was a moment for me because somebody posted it so quickly after the shooting. And I saw it and just thought to myself, like, this is beyond culture war. Like, this is fetishization. Yeah. And it's fetishization of violence. It's fetishization of, like, guns communicate a certain kind of power. I mean, they literally possess a kind of power. And here you have this thing and you have, you know, it's one of these weird ironies of American life. The party in America that is most commonly associated with the evangelical movement is a party that at this point, I would argue, unthinkingly always takes the defensive posture on firearms and, again, embraces this kind of fetishization. You had a phenomenon you know, a few months ago where a bunch of congressmen were wearing pins with AR-15s into the House of Congress. There's the gun debate, right? There's the Second Amendment debate. Fine. That's a that's one thing. Mm -hmm. This is something entirely different. This is an ethos that gets, again, it sort of gets bundled with all this other stuff in politics and religion and culture unquestioningly. And the level of harm I think it does and the degree to which it contributes to a culture of violence is just utterly unexamined by the very people who are doing it. And I, again, I return to this issue of power the violence exacerbates the issues of power because it's not just violence and guns, but it is the violent language that is used by particular people of language of annihilation, language, language of utter yeah. destruction, language of yeah. wiping people off of the face of the map. This is, this is part of that underlying system of trying to get power by any means necessary and use power as a weapon against detractors, against people with different ideologies, against any level of difference. That's a very scary place to be in. And I think that is a unique marker of American society and life right now. Well, I want to end on a more positive note. Um, and maybe positive is the wrong word. Um, I think one of the things in this story that has been so striking is the response of the Nashville police when, mm -hmm. when the word broke. Police were on the scene in about 10 minutes. Within four minutes of arriving on the scene, 
They had taken down the shooter. I think rightly, people keep comparing this to the outcome in Uvalde, where law Mm -hmm. enforcement waited 77 minutes to confront the shooter, to enter the classroom. And I don't so much want to talk about Uvalde as I want to talk about courage. You know, this footage is available online. It's very intense. You know, it's it's about two minutes of footage and it's it's hard to watch. I don't commend it necessarily. But it's the classic, you know, the, the cliche that attaches to something like this is that in a moment when everything in your mind and body is telling you, get out, you have these men, these responders going towards the gunfire, going yeah. towards the danger. And you see a spirit in it too. There's this connection between them all, pushing each other forward. And there's so much to speak of about what's good about the human spirit in what you see there, in the courage, in the bravery. And in the midst of this tragedy, it's this, weirdly to me, it's this light of this is what courage looks like. It's still there. They're still in the human spirit in the midst of a darkness. There's something profound to witness in that. These two police officers are inspiring, are are heroes. I mean, you're exactly right. The thing that struck me, even when I saw their pictures for the first time, is how young they are. And yet they were trained in the right way, but it wasn't just the training. There had to be that internal sense of courage and of responsibility of protecting the innocent that prompted them to run into the gunfire. And I would say we see the same thing in the principal who ran toward the trouble. And um, and I mean, I mentioned this before, but it's hard to communicate to people how revered this woman is in Nashville. And largely it's because she did have this sense of, I'm a part of the community and I have a responsibility to the community. And we saw that with the police. We saw that with her. And there's still that image of God decency, integrity, responsibility. It's its still there. Yes, it is. I had a friend um, who's a principal, was talking to them this week, and they were saying, you know, the thing that strikes me about this moment um, is the fact that in Uvalde, we did not hear about a principal or a vice principal who lost their lives. Uh, where were the administrators, the student, the, the, the adults in trying to stop things? And this is not to cast judgment on those who were in that horrific situation in Uvalde, but it does stand out that multiple reports say this was a woman, this headmaster, Catherine Coons, was someone who was trying to defend her children. She believed enough in her job, and I would say not just her job, but her calling. She believed enough in a sense of calling to say, I'm not just here to you know, put on school parades. I'm here to protect the children. And as a parent, I read that story and I thought, Lord, let more people feel a sense of calling, of duty, not just to their audiences, but to God in such a way that they would be willing to charge in every first responder who shows up at 9-11, every, you know, doctor who shows up when everyone else is running away and rooms filled with tear gas, all of the the healthcare officials in COVID-19 who still showed up despite potential for their own loss of life. This is a moment of really rethinking what does it mean to be called, to be called Mm. by God, to be called to be a first line of defense against those who are vulnerable. And prayerfully, this becomes a moment where others will say, If Catherine could do that, so can I. Well, I think I speak for all of us when I say that this church, this school, this city of Nashville is in our prayers. 
in the prayers of all of us here at CT. And I want to thank you, Russell and Nicole, for joining me today. I want to thank Kate Shelnut for joining me earlier. And thank all of you for listening to The Bulletin. Uh, We will see you next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens. Hosted by Russell Moore and Mike Cosper. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. The show is edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.